verse 32, and we'll read down to verse number 35. The Bible says here, And what shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Look at the rest of verse 35. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Boy, we'll focus on that second half of verse 35 as well as the rest of the chapter in the weeks to come. Uh, but for tonight, we'll turn our attention to verses 33 through the beginning of 35. And we'll notice uh, faith's examples. Speaking of faith, it's power on display. It's power on display. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight to understand and to be challenged and encouraged. And Lord, my prayer is that we would all be a little more incentivized to live a life of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, faith is um faith is a powerful thing. Faith accomplishes some pretty remarkable um, uh, tasks. And we're going to see that in Scripture tonight. But I want to make sure that I throw a disclaimer out here before we get into the outline. And I want to throw this disclaimer out at the beginning. Here it is. Just because you have faith does not guarantee that God's going to give you your heart's expectation. Just because you take a stand by faith does not mean that God's necessarily going to come through for you. God may choose not to, quote-unquote, come through for you. And we don't have faith so that, you know, we can have the best possible result. We have faith because it's right to have faith. We have faith because our God is worthy of our faith. Amen? You say, well, pastor, I took a stand at work. Uh, I stood for my faith at work, and I got fired. I thought God, because I took a stand, would have kept me from getting fired. Well, he's capable of that, isn't he? That doesn't mean he's going to do that. You say, well, then, pastor, why should I have faith if God's not going to protect my job if I stand up for him at, my, at work? And the answer is because he is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your believing in Him and trusting Him. And if you live a life of faith, then in the long run, either here on earth or definitely in heaven, boy, it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off. Well, let's, uh, let's look at where faith accomplishes great things. Scripture is going to lay out for us from 33 down through the beginning of 35 some incredible feats that were accomplished because men... Men and women had great 
faith. And then verse 35, the second half of the verse down to the end of the chapter, shows where God uh, did not step in and make up the difference when people had faith. We'll get to those other verses uh, here another week. But uh, tonight we're going to begin a, a Bible study, The Power of Faith, put on display. It will take us two, maybe three weeks to get into it. Let's jump in and look at this phrase by phrase. Uh, Point number one is this, faith subdued kingdoms. Faith subdued kingdoms. Look at verse number 33 of Hebrews chapter number 11. The Bible says, who through faith, what are those next two words? Subdued kingdoms. You guys awake this evening? Amen. You tired from a long day at work? Right? And you, you kind of drug in here a little bit. Uh, uh, you guys uh, uh, work with me here. All right, here we go. Let's try that again. Who through faith? What are those next two words? Subdued kingdoms. They subdued kingdoms. Let's look at two examples of this from the Old Testament. There's many more. But let's look at two examples of this in the Old Testament where men walked by faith. And because of their faith, uh, unruly kingdoms that were rising up and acting in, uh, uh, in sin, uh, kingdoms that were heathen nations who were anti-God, boy, God used men to subdue or bring them under control, if not annihilate them. Notice the first example would be David. David, turn over with me to 2 Samuel chapter number 8 and look with me at verse number 1. 2 Samuel chapter 8, and look at one uh, verse 1. And we're actually going to read the first two verses here. The Bible says, And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines, and look at there, and subdued them. There's that word, subdued them. And David took uh, Methag Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he smote Moab, and measured them with the line, Casting them down to the ground, even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. I don't want to chase a a rabbit uh, uh, too far, but I do want to take a moment and just address a question that I have fielded a lot as a pastor. In fact, this is a question that you'll, uh, this is a, a slight many people take against the Bible. This is a criticism, if you will, of the Bible. In fact, I believe even President Obama, uh, uh, when he was in office, the Islamic faith was getting picked on a little bit, and he stood up for Islam, uh, basically to say, hey, Christianity had its time of, of quote-unquote jihad, if you will, too, where the Israelites were out uh, committing genocide against people. And uh, so that's the slight is that uh, why did God allow total people groups to just be wiped off the map? Why did God command the Israelites to completely destroy, completely eliminate people groups? And uh, if God is a loving God, how could He or why would He allow that to happen? And I would say that to understand the answer to that question, you must take a step back and first... Uh, humble your heart a little bit and realize that you are not God and you do not have God's perspective on these people groups and you don't understand the wickedness, you do not understand uh, the sin, you do not understand the debauchery of these people groups and how that they opposed God's people and were unkind towards God's people. You don't have that perspective the way that God has it. And God is just, and God is right. And if God orders for a nation or a city or a people group to be destroyed, He is just, 
in doing so. And it's not on us to question that. It's not on us to, uh, uh, to say to God, why, why are you doing that? It's our place to trust that God knows what he is doing. Um, uh, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, no doubt, right? Everybody here familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, once you read the acts that were going on in that city, how that they're trying to break the door down in their blindness to get to the two angels to uh, do things to them that were just awful, does anybody justify God destroying those cities with fire and brimstone? Does anybody question that? Does anybody wonder if God was justified in doing that? Well, why don't you question it? Because God gives you the perspective of their wickedness. You must understand that God pulls back the curtain with Sodom and Gomorrah and He shows you their wickedness. He doesn't always do that with every people group that He has ordered destroyed. But believe you me, there are there is wickedness behind the curtain that if you knew about, you wouldn't question God anymore. You wouldn't question God anymore. Each one of these people groups that God orders to have wiped off the map and destroyed, God has done so, and He is justified and right every single time. For here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, we know that the Philistines defied God. We know they hated God. We know they couldn't stand God. We know they were a thorn in the side of the Israelites, constantly a thorn in the side, and they worshipped false gods, and I believe Dagon was one of their gods. And, and, and so when, uh, when, when David came in and subdued or brought them under control, he was simply bringing under control an army that was trying to overtake the Israelites. How did David do that? Let's get back to the message this evening. How did David do that? He did it by faith. Do you know oftentimes these armies were outnumbered? Uh, the Israeli armies were outnumbered and outmanned, and they didn't have technology or warfare instruments that were as good as their enemy, but they had God. They had God. And David, you remember in 1 Samuel 17, we looked at it two weeks ago, where he looks at a giant that's nine feet nine inches tall as a teenage boy, and he says, hey buddy, I'm going to feed you and your army to the birds today. You know why he had faith. Faith can subdue kingdoms. Uh, let's look at another example here. J- uh, Gideon. Gideon. Uh, 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 turn back with me to Judges chapter number 7. Now we talked about Gideon's story a couple of weeks ago, but let's go back and look at it again here. Judges chapter number 7, if you will, in your Bibles. Faith is a powerful, powerful thing. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard, or the size of a mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? One of the smallest seeds, if not the smallest seed, that you can hold in your hand. Hey, Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can order that mountain to be cast into the sea, and it will happen. And uh, someone says, oh, well, Pastor, that was hyperbole, and uh, the Lord was uh, hyperbolic on purpose. And I would say, uh, maybe He was, maybe He wasn't, but can I tell you this, that if there was a good reason to have a mountain moved, and God wanted that mountain moved, and you had faith to order that mountain moved, and, and God, it was God's will, then by faith, bless God, the mountain could be moved. Amen? It's a question of having faith that's reasonable and having faith that's in line with God's will. And when we do that, boy, incredible things happen. Let's look at Gideon here. We'll see how that God can do the bizarre and the impossible 
uh, uh, even when it doesn't make any sense. Look at Judges chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse number 7 here. It says, Then Jerubbabel, uh, who is Gideon, uh, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside uh, the well of Harad, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. You see what here the Lord's trying to do? He's trying to protect the Israelites from their own pride. God says, if this army, as it stands, goes and defeats the Midianites, they're not going to give me the credit. They're going to take the credit. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart uh, early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. Now, I'm amazed by this. They have a thirty-two thousand man army. And Gideon gets up and says, if you're scared, go home. And look how many of these guys leave. 22 of the 32,000 men were too scared to stay and fight. They said, no, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Can I speak to the men in the church for a minute? Men, now is not the time to cower. Satan is launching an all-out assault against the church right now. It's real, guys. And now is not the time to, to tuck your tail and go home and hide. Now, we need to have grace... We need to be kind, and we need to be respectful, and we need to follow every ordinance of man that is not out of line with God. But but where the government stands up and tries to order us to do something that's against this Scripture, we need to grow a backbone, we need to be a man. And let me tell you where it begins. It begins at home. You're going to let your wife boss you around and keep you from doing what you know is right? You're not going to take a stand when the government comes and tries to take your Bible away. Now, I'm not saying you need to be rude to your wife. I'm not saying you need to be mean to your children. I'm not saying that you need to be nasty and ugly and angry. But I am saying that men in this church need to grow a backbone and stand. And when someone says, if you're scared, you can go home, you say, I'm not going to let my fear lead me. I'm going to walk by faith and I'm going to lead my family to do the same. 22,000 men packed up their bags and went home. Because they were scared. And I'm sure Gideon must have been discouraged. Gideon said, this is the men of our country? Oh my goodness. Look, Let's keep reading the story here. God wasn't done purging. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet... So he's left with 10,000 guys. The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them uh, for thee there. And it shall be... That of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. 
Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon the knee, his knee to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knee to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. Wow. So, uh, picture this. you got 22,000 men. must have been a very large body of water. And Gideon says, all right, guys, go. Maybe he sends them in groups. But go and, and, and drink from the, the, the body of water there. And of the 22,000 men, 300 of them get down and lay on their, their stomachs and their chests. And they stick their face in the water and they lap the water like a dog. You know, you're certifiably insane if that's how you drink water out of a bottle. Water out of out of out of a lake. Get down, and <laughs> right? And the rest of them did it the way I would have done it. They got down on a knee and they cupped the water up and they brought it to their mouth. And Gideon, by the order of God, says, "All right, all of you that got down on a knee and put the water up to your mouth, go home. You're not needed." Oh boy! Now these weren't chickens. These men were fierce. Because they didn't leave when they had the chance. I'm sure I, I would have loved to have heard those conversations on the way back. Gideon is nuts. Gideon is crazy. He took the 300 men that have a screw loose, and he's going to go fight the Midianites with them. But hey, Gideon was just doing what he was told. You see, for at this point, for Gideon to follow through on God's orders, can we all agree that Gideon's faith was immensely strong? He's going to go fight against a number that can uh, an army that can't even be numbered, an innumerable army with three hundred certified nuts. That's faith. That's faith. But faith subdues kingdoms. Uh, skip down to verse number nineteen with me. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came um, unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hand. And the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand to blow with all. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the hosts ran and came and fled. And the three hundred blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the hosts. And the hosts fled to Beth Shitta and uh, in uh, Zerath uh, and to the borders of uh, uh, that place unto uh, Tabith. And the Listen, it's okay. If there's words in the Bible that trip you up, I'm the pastor. They get me too, okay? Don't feel bad. Verse 23. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and and take before them the waters unto Beth Abera and Jordan. Uh, then all the men of Ephraim uh, uh, gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Beth Abera and Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and uh, Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb and pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side Jordan. They subdued kingdoms. You know why this happened? This happened because Gideon had a faith 
that was, that was extreme and radical. Radical faith produces radical results. Little faith produces little results. Number two, go back to Hebrews 11.33 with me and notice faith wrought righteousness or brought about. Faith wrought righteousness. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 33. Who through faith? I'm going to have you read, so be ready here, okay? Who through faith subdued kingdoms? What are those next two words? Wrought righteousness. Wrought righteousness. Let's look at some examples of folks who took a stand for what was right and led by faith and right and righteousness became the culture. The first example we're going to offer here is Samuel. Samuel. Okay, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 9. We were just in Second uh, Samuel. This time we're going to go to First Samuel. First Samuel chapter eight and verse number nine. So here, to give you a little bit of background on this. Uh, here, the people are coming to Samuel saying, give us a king. We want a king. We need a king. We have to have a king. And Samuel knows that this is not God's perfect will. It's going to end up being God's permissive will, but it is not verse, uh, God's perfect will. Look at verse 9. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king uh, that shall reign over them. Now, we're not going to take the time to read the rest of this, but if you will mark this uh, verse... Uh, on the back of your outline to go back and read this passage. And what you'll find is that Samuel proclaims to them, look guys, this is wrong. You're making the wrong choice. This is not a good idea. And the people actually repent and they're sorrowful and Samuel is able to lead them uh, into righteousness. Turn over to chapter number 12. First Samuel uh, chapter number 12. And we're going to read from verse 3 down through verse number 24. This is Bible study, so get ready to read the Bible. Amen? Look here. Behold, here I am, witness against me before the Lord, Samuel speaking, and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose ass have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or of whose hand have I received any bribe uh, to blind mine eyes therewith, and I will restore it you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in mine hand. And they answered, He is witness. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord. Of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Uh, Now, as we read, remember, faith brings about righteousness. Faith leads others into righteousness. Watch how Samuel does this here. Look at verse 8. When Jacob was coming to Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell 
in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. We learned this. This is the story of Barak, a captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. We have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Baden and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and ye dwelled safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired, and behold the Lord hath set a king before you. If ye will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. Now therefore, stand and see this great thing, which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking you a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, unto the Lord rather, And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For uh, we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all the wickedness, all this wickedness. Ye turn not... Uh, aside from following the Lord, or yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then shall ye go after vain things which cannot profit, nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for, it, for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. And in verse 23 and 24, we, we have sung in church on Sunday morning, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. In ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. You see what Samuel's doing here? He's saying to the Israelites, you have made the wrong choice. You have headed down the wrong path. This is what's right. Fear God. Put Him first. And you see how the Israelites followed you see how they followed one thing one theme that you find in the preceding chapters of the bible the rest of first and second samuel and first and second kings and chronicles here's what you find is everybody listening to me what you find is that when the king does right the people do right when the king does that which is evil in the sight of the lord the people do that which is evil in the sight of the lord what lesson can we take from that The lesson we can take from that is that leaders have a very important role of leading their people in righteousness. 
Donald Trump is a polarizing character. There are people in this church that would just about give their life for the guy. There are people in this church that if there was a firing squad, they'd be the first one to pull the trigger. (laughs) Polarizing character. And it's amazing to me how two people can sit on the pew and one church member can love the guy, another church member can just, I mean, as close to hating the guy as possible without hating him. Some maybe even hate him. And yet both of those people genuinely and sincerely love God. Let me just take a moment and encourage the church. Do not ever fall in love with a politician. Ever. You should never be loyal to politicians because they're sinful men. You should be loyal to political principles that line up with the Bible. And you vote according to what the Bible says, not by who some personality is on a politician. Now, if that is your paradigm, if that is your perspective, do you know what that's going to cause you to do? It's going to cause you to pray for your president no matter who he is. When Barack Obama was president of this country, I got off of Facebook for many reasons. One of the things that drove me crazy about Facebook is how conservative Christians treated him like trash. He was our president. You may not have liked his uh, politics, you may have loved his politics, but you should have been on your face praying for him that he would walk with God and have God lead. You may not like Donald Trump, you may love Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. You should be on your face praying that God would get hold of his heart and that if the man isn't saved, he'd get saved. And that if he is saved, he'd quit being so vain and stuck up and so arrogant and so bullish and that he would lead this country to follow God. And you know what? You need to do the same for Governor Ned Lamont. You need to do the same for the mayor of your city. You need to do the same for your police chief in your town. You need to do the same uh, uh, for our senators and those who represent us in the House of uh, uh, in, in the in the People's House in Congress. We need to do our part to pray that our leaders will lead us into righteousness. Christians need to stink and shut off the news. We run the news and we run it and we run it and we run it. How about Psalm 1-1? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. How many of the pundits on your cable news channel are actually saved? And you're letting them tell you what to believe and vote? You're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, Christian. And that goes for you, those of you that watch Fox News as well. A lot of those people on Fox News aren't saved. And you're letting them tell you what to believe. How about you let the Bible tell you what to believe? How about you let the Scriptures tell you how to vote instead of letting some person who is ungodly tell you how to vote? We need to turn off the news and we need to get in our Bible. We need to turn off the news and we need to get on our knees. And we need to pray that God makes us righteous so we can lead this country to be righteous. Furthermore, the other lesson I'll take, the other thing I'll point out of this is that if the leader of your country or the leader of your home or the leader of the church, hopefully that's not the case here, but if those leaders, maybe your boss at work, the leaders in your life are not righteous, then you know what you need to do? You need to be righteous. You need not to let those who are in charge of you dictate your spirituality. You need to do what's right. 
You need to lead those who call you a leader. You need to lead them to do what's righteous. Let's look at another example. David. David. And just one verse real quick, and then we'll move on to the third point. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 15. I don't know who needed that, but I, I believe much of our church needs that. I believe much of America needs that. And while we're turning there, I just want to throw this in here about cable news. Uh, if you can tell that I don't like cable news, you're right, I don't. I don't like any of it. I'm not a Fox News watcher. And I know that some of you, man, you go home and the first thing you do is turn on Fox News. Or you turn on CNN or MSNBC. You need to shut that garbage off. You need to shut it off. You say, well, Pastor, I've got to get my news somewhere. Pick up, uh, uh, try to find a source that is objective and read for 10 minutes a day and then shut it off. Christian, if you're watching more news than you are reading your Bible, then you're watching too much news. Amen? Are we in agreement tonight? I might be stepping on some toes tonight, but some toes need to be stepped on. We're to be Christians. We're not to be political experts. And I will not turn this pulpit into political jargon. I am not going to stand up here and preach politics. I'm going to preach the Bible. And sometimes, politics and the Bible end up in the same lane. And when they do, I'm going to preach the Bible. Amen? We're going to let the Word of God stand. Some people, I read something the other day by a preacher. He said, uh, people don't want you preaching on politics unless it's politics they agree with. And then they want you preaching politics. Preacher, let them have it! When it lines up with your point of view. Hey, there's one thing that all of us can agree on, regardless of where you stand on our political leaders, and that is that God's Word is accurate. God's Word has the answers. And we can all love each other, and we can be righteous. Amen? Amen. Much of the fear-mongering that goes on is pushed by our media friends. I mean, our media enemies. I'll add this uh, uh, here, and then I'll, I'll get off of that. Okay, here it is. Do you understand that cable news is pandering for money? You all understand that? CNN and MSNBC play to a base that leans left because they're trying to get people to watch so they can drive up their viewership so that they can make more money. And Fox News plays to the right so they can drum up sales and make more money through commercials. And so, naturally, the news that comes on CNN and MSNBC is going to be slanted to the left, and naturally what comes on Fox News is going to be slanted to the right. You're not going to get an objective view from either news channel. So why would you watch it? Journalism in America, in my opinion, I'm going getting into a little bit of opinion here, but journalism in America is pretty much dead. It's gone. Journalists aren't, journalists aren't objective anymore. They, they've taken off the mask, figuratively, not literally, amen? They've taken off the mask, and they're just uh, showing their true colors, and they're letting their bias come right out. Christians don't get sucked up into that. We are called to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And let's be Christians. Amen? Amen. David. All right. I got that all out of my system. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse number 15. Let's see how David wrought righteousness uh, to, to Israel. The Bible says here, And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice 
unto all his people. Boy, uh, we, we uh, put a magnifying glass over David's shortcomings. And we do a lot of that. But I'll just say uh, here quickly that David ruled over all of Israel for 33 years and from Hebron another seven years. Forty years, David had a leadership role in Israel and for the lion's share of the time, he led his country, he led his people to do what was right. Uh, so what does faith do? Faith brings about righteousness. Let me ask you this, Christian. At work... Are your co-workers more like Christ because they know you? At home, is your marriage more like Christ because of you? Um, are your parents, children, more like Christ before you? That goes for us adults as well that have parents that are alive. Right? Our siblings, are we leading them to be closer to Christ? Hey, they're not always going to follow, but, but we're there to lead them, amen, when they're ready to follow. Amen? How about your neighborhood? It's our place to lead righteously, and we've got to do that by faith. Faith wrought righteousness. Number three, notice, faith obtained promises. Faith obtained promises. Turn over back over with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 33. I pulled my bookmark out, so now I've got to find it. Sword drill, amen? Hebrews chapter 11. In verse number 33. Who, through faith, we're seeing faith's power on display here, uh, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, obtained promises. Now I'm going to show you something really cool here. Turn over to Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel chapter 9. Obtained promises. Uh, if you uh, are one who likes to really study the Bible and, uh, and dive deep, Let's see, I'm talking and I've got to think about where Daniel is at the same time. Amen. I found it. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is an interesting character. The first several chapters of Daniel have just some incredible stories. We'll look at a couple of those here in a minute. But the last half of the book of Daniel is prophecy that God gives Daniel about upcoming events. And some of these have taken place and prove uh, and legitimatize the Bible, and others' prophecies are still yet to take place. Look with me at Daniel chapter 9 and look at verse number uh, 21. The Bible says, we'll read down to verse 27, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, uh, even the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, Touch me about the time of the, ev- of the evening oblation, or my evening prayer time. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth. For I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. He's going to be given a vision. Look here. Seventy weeks. I have those two words underlined in my Bible. We're going to come back and talk about that here in just a moment. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, 
the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So 39 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troubled times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Uh, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come um, uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Let's pause the reading there uh, uh, for a moment. So 70 weeks, 70 weeks. The word week, we think of it as Sunday through Saturday, right? The word week means a group of seven. It doesn't have to be days. Any group of seven is considered a week. So uh, seven, uh, seven months would be a week of months. Seven years would be a week of years. Seventy weeks. This is talking about seventy sets of seven years. How much, what is seventy times seven? Someone spit that out at me here. 490. Man, you guys are a smart bunch tonight. Do I need to go back and uh, preach against cable news and wake you guys back up? I mean, y'all went to sleep on me here. 490 years. 490 years. So 70 sets of 7 years. 490. Now, what this is, is this is a prophecy to when Jesus Christ will die. And if you go in and you do the math and you look at the calendar of when uh, the, the Israelites were released to go back from Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem, and you start the clock right there, and you follow the clock according to the prophecy in Daniel 9, you land on the very year on the calendar when Jesus would both be born and when He would die. And you know what? It happened. It happened. 69 weeks. 69 weeks. And uh, uh, you say, well, what about the 70th week? Well, I have this written in the, the, the margin of my Bible. Between verse 26 and verse 27 is the church age. That's where we're at right now. The church exists between verse 26 and verse 27. What happens to the last set of seven years? The 69 have been completed. That 70th week has been set aside for something that would happen later. A set of seven years. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. That's the 70th week. What kicks off the 70th week? The church being taken up. The rapture. You find that in Revelation chapter 4. It's also described in First and Second Thessalonians. The church is caught away. We're gone. And that starts, that kicks off that seven-year tribulation. What happens three and a half years in? Look at verse number 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week uh, shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So he, this is the Antichrist, is going to sign a treaty with Israel and the Islamic world, and uh, he's going to allow the temple to be rebuilt. Okay, What is seven divided by two? You guys wake up now. What's seven divided by two? Three and a half. So three and a half years into the tribulation... He causes all of the sacrifices in the temple to stop. 
All of the oblations to cease. All of the ritualism is going to cease. Look here. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that, that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. We call this the abomination of desolation. What happens? The Antichrist, we know this from comparing with uh, Revelation, the Antichrist walks into the temple and he sits down on David's throne and he declares himself to be God. And at that moment, the eyes of the Jews are open and the temple becomes desolate because the Jews flee. They leave. In the next three and a half years, Satan will persecute the Jews. And God will create a place for them and protect them. But still the Jews will be persecuted. Isn't this amazing that all of this was given to Daniel thousands of years before Christ would even be born? And God would, uh, would give Daniel... Listen... Please understand that up to this point, the idea of a Messiah was just this out there idea. It was this idea, yeah, one day a Messiah is going to come, and then God comes to Daniel and says, let me give you the exact date that I'm going to come through on my promise. Pretty amazing. By the way, have you ever wondered how the, uh, the um, wise men knew to come find Jesus? Because of this passage. It says they came from the east. And this is my opinion. From studying scripture, I can't prove this, and this is—I I guess you'd say this is an educated guess. My guess is that these men were from Babylon and had been saved. Magi who had studied Daniel nine, uh, Dan, our Daniel chapter nine, and knew that Jesus was going to come and knew about the year he was going to come from this prophecy. So when they saw that star appear in the sky, they said, "Aha." There it is. And they followed the star. Faith obtained promises. Now, I'll finish with this. And we'll continue on next week looking at the power of faith. Can I tell you, Christian, that faith, God is not going to give you a new revelation. The Bible's done being written. God's not going to come speak to you the way He used Gabriel to speak to Daniel. Um, if anyone tells you that God audibly spoke to you, you need to turn around and run the other direction. God doesn't do that anymore. He's done speaking audibly to people. Now, He speaks to us through His Spirit within us. But He doesn't say, Menigno, <laughs> John. You're not going to wake up and hear God calling your name. Okay? So, is God going to give you some new promise that isn't already in the Bible? No. But can I tell you as a believer... That there are times where my faith has waned, my faith has struggled, and I've known the promises of God, but I have struggled to really believe the promises of God. And so you know what faith does for me? It helps me to obtain assurance that God always comes through on His promises. Somebody in here tonight is going through a really tough time. Whether that's a relationship strain or struggle or financial strain or struggle, Romans 8.28, and we know, say it with me, that all things work together for the good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. Do you, believe, do you really believe that promise? How about when you are just in the pit of despair, depression? Do you really believe that all things work together for good? Sometimes we can lose faith in God's promises. We get down on our knees and we say, Lord, renew my faith. And you know what? We don't obtain a new promise, but we obtain assurance that God comes through on His promises. Aren't you glad that God comes through on His promises every time? 
that he never fails. He never fails because he cannot lie. Amen? Hey, faith is a powerful thing. Faith is a wonderful tool in our arsenal. But we must live by faith. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer this evening. I hope the Bible study has been a help to you. Hey, let's go forth and be Christians. Let's be bright lights in a dark world, at work, at home, everywhere we go. Lord, help us to take the truths tonight and apply them to our heart. Lord, thank you for the Old Testament examples of men who were feeble and frail just like us, but because they stepped out on faith, you did some incredible things with them. Help us, Lord, to be willing to live a life of radical, radical faith. In Jesus' name we pray.